I'm Christine. And I'm Alan. We'd like to thank you for tuning in to our discussion this week. Our hope is that we'll share some information that you'll find helpful. So now we invite you to join us as we together listen listen for for the the word. word. Hi, everybody. Welcome to our podcast today. Well, you'll notice that we are on Palm Sunday. Uh, but you might be surprised to find out that the, le- the lectionary passage is actually the Passion Narrative, um, and we're in Mark 15, verses 1 through 47. Um, and as I said, this is a little bit of a surprise uh, as to what we might be reading, but let's kind of talk about it, find out why it might be here, and, and talk about what this means in terms of, um, in terms of Jesus' life. So I'm going to start with Alan just simply asking us to put um, Jesus' death in the context of the ancient Roman and Jewish world. Thank you, Christy. Uh, yeah, it, you know, I think we tend to take for granted that Jesus had to die. But I think it's important to kind of look underneath that and understand why Jesus' Jewish and Roman opponents saw him as a threat that need to be, needed to be eliminated. Um, in, in the Roman world, you have basically uh, the idea of patronage that was pretty much the foundation for their world. What that meant was that you gave support only to those who could repay you. And so the result of that was that the very fabric of the Roman society was a chain of patron and client relationships that reached from the slave to the emperor and even to their gods. And so the fact that Jesus taught his disciples to give without any thought of return really kind of threatened to unravel all that. Similarly, the temple stood as the visible reminder to the fact that Judaism was founded on the separation between what was holy and what was common, between clean and unclean, and that access to God was possible only under very carefully prescribed conditions. And so Jesus' practice of eating with those who were considered sinful, his granting of forgiveness to those who were outcast, and his teaching that it was through service and suffering that God's kingdom would be fulfilled, and not rather than rigid adherence to tradition, that not only threatened the temple establishment, but also turned upside down, in a sense, the whole Jewish understanding of God. And um, so from both sides, Jesus was, in a sense, really overturning their whole worldview. Yeah, it's both sides. It's not that Jesus is offensive to, to the Romans. He's offensive to the Jewish establishment. I mean, he's... Um, well, I think this also kind of sheds light on why they seem to be focused on the temple in, the, in his trials. Oh, good point. Because, yeah. because really, that was, that was sort of the power base. That's the power base. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. At least for the priestly establishment. Yeah. The, the synagogue was more the power base for the Pharisees. Sure. But, you know... Jesus' teachings also kind of undermined that as well. Right, right. Um, so moving on then, um, how do we, you know, one of the things is the actual event of, of the narrative, the actual history, but also then it's references to the Old Testament, which yeah. are, which are yeah. really woven throughout. So which is, is it accurate? Is it right. an accurate assessment? Right. You know, I think we have to, again, recognize that when we're, when we're dealing with Gospels, we're not dealing with an encyclopedic article that would, that would go in the Encyclopedia Britannica or something like that. We're dealing with a narrative that combined memory with theological reflection. 
And that's true of the Gospels. It's true especially of the Passion narrative. One issue with the Passion narrative is that there are numerous references to and or allusions to the Hebrew Bible. And probably John's Gospel draws this out most clearly. Um, there's just a whole slew. Really, it's a veritable treasure trove of Old Testament proof texts that are used throughout the New Testament are found either quoted or alluded to in the Passion narrative. And so we, we especially have the influence of Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53. Uh, and this has led some to question whether we're dealing with history remembered or prophecy historicized. In other words, they mm-hmm. found this in the Old Testament and they created the story right. to match. Right. Um, now, I would say that while the Passion narratives do, again, like the rest of the Gospels, they combine memory with interpretation, I think it only makes sense that the church would interpret these events through the lens of Scripture. And so I would say that we, we can use sort of these subtexts. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mark doesn't really bring them out as right. explicitly as some of the others do, but we can still use these subtexts to understand Mark's presentation of, of Jesus' death on the cross. Yeah, I, it, which is really interesting. And you know, I, as I was thinking about this, obviously this is an event that had an oral history. It mm-hmm. doesn't really necessarily come down to us, or maybe it's embodied in some way in in these gospel texts. You know, um, but when you think about all the witnesses that would have seen this happen and would have had their version of this story, and then how it eventually comes to be one kind of general narrative that we see in these gospels is is actually really fascinating and cool. Yes. Um, yeah, we have the end product. We don't. We don't. Right. Really, we can only. We can only theorize about the process. Absolutely, only yeah. theorize about the process. Exactly. So let's let's start digging into the the things. We we open with this scene of Pilate. So tell us about Pilate. What? Why is Pilate important? And and also a little bit maybe about what Pilate's motive is. Well, the first scene in this chapter does recount Jesus' trial or his interview before Pilate. And Pilate begins by asking Jesus if he was the king of the Jews, which in that setting could imply royal aspirations. Uh, So there are two things that are striking about this thing. First, um, Jesus appears before Pilate as one who is bound. And so to all outward appearances, he's powerless. And that it, it tinges Pilate's question with a great deal of irony. Mm-hmm. So you are the king of the Jews? Yeah. You know? Which we could hear that. You know, we can't, we can't. When we we can't it. always, and I think we're not always sensitive to the irony that is uh, found um, in the, the scriptures. But I think very much so, one of the main themes that we're going to find throughout this passage is, is that um, it is filled with irony. And of course, Jesus simply replies, you say that I am. And and then he remains silent before his accusers, who Mark simply says accused him of many things. Luke fills out some of that, but we don't really have that detail in Mark's gospel. But Jesus' silence, I think, recalls the implication of his passion predictions, that there was a divine necessity to these events and that he was determined to fulfill that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think they also have a clear echo to the suffering servant who was silent before his right. accusers in Isaiah 53, 7. And there's also another reference in, in Psalm 38, uh, 10. And so as a result, then, 
Pilate is amazed and and kind of dumbfounded. And this also recalls sort of the introduction to Isaiah 53 in 52:15, where it mentions that the, the nations were amazed and the kings shut their mouths. And so, it, you know, I think we see these, these subtexts from the, old, the Hebrew Bible sort of framing the way in which uh, Mark is, is relating the event. Moving on then. Then we bring in Barabbas. And um, I have to be honest, one of the things that strikes me about Barabbas is that Mark goes, goes ahead and names this character. Mm-hmm. Um, tell, us, tell us about the scene and, and, and why this Barabbas character is so important. Well, with reference to Ra- Barabbas, um, I think primarily um, the, the, this is the scene where Pilate is trying to release Jesus to the crowd. And, and the crux really of the scene, I think, is in the comparison between Jesus and Barabbas, who was, who's called a rebel— uh, Stasiastes, which is only used here in the New Testament, mm-hmm. and who had committed murder during the insurrection, mm-hmm. the stasis. And, you know, we know of, of um, riots that took place during Pilate's uh, regime from Josephus. Um, perhaps Barabbas was associated with one of those riots and, and thus had gained some sort of notoriety. But I think the primary point of this passage is that both appeared before the crowd as prisoners. And so the idea is that um, I think the intention was to portray Jesus as a rebel yes. by association with mm-hmm. Barabbas. Mm-hmm. And, and when we say rebel, I mean an insurgent. Right, right. And, and, of course, this, I think, is confirmed by the fact that Jesus was said to have been crucified between two bandits. And the Greek word is leistes, which mm-hmm. Josephus uses for the most part to refer uh. to the insurgents that he blames for the Jewish war. So... That's really the notion is that Barabbas was an insurgent. Jesus is being presented as an insurgent. Jesus is crucified with two insurgents. And, and so we have, you know, really kind of a, that's the picture that's being portrayed here. Another piece that interested me was the crowd. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and perhaps this, for me, it was the most interesting because you have this crowd that's following Jesus, that's, you know, welcoming him into Jerusalem, that's waving palms, and then the next thing you know, it, the crowd is willing to turn on on Jesus. By the way, hinting ahead, this is also a bit of an interest to our reformers, this, mm-hmm. this crowd, and, and what is going on here. Yeah. So, You know, the, the word for crowd in Greek is oklos, and, and that's the word that's used in this passage. Interestingly, oklos is not used in the triumphal entry at least to describe the people who were waving the palm branches. Mm-hmm. It is used afterwards. Uh, it describes the, the fact that the people, that the crowd was spellbound by his teaching mm-hmm. after he cleansed the temple in, in 1118. And at the conclusion of his ongoing debate, there's a similar kind of uh, ongoing debate between Jesus and the Jewish leaders that we saw as the one that we saw in Matthew's gospel. And um, the crowd... The Aklos is said to have listened to him with delight. But now we have the crowd demanding that he be crucified. Uh, you know, to me, I think when you think about mob behavior, it's kind of, 
it's not hard to envision that, you know, as, as Mark says, the chief priests incited the crowd. Right. And once you get a mob going, I mean, right. you know, you, you have this frenzy of mob absolutely. behavior. And once it's unleashed, it's hard to predict where it's going to end. It absolutely reminded me very much of the sociology, you know, class and, and just how mobs behave and mm -hmm. mobs take on their own identity. Um, and I think mobs are a perfect example of kind of human sin gone awry. I mm. mean, you know, it, it just piles on top. People stop, lose, they start losing their heads. Um, so we move on. Um, the next scene um, describes, if you will, this coronation, this mockery um, of Jesus by the, um, by the soldiers. And all of this, this whole passage, is again, this is filled with irony. And this is another aspect in that irony in that um the soldiers sort of stage a mock coronation of jesus um the purple robe the crown of thorns the mock acclamation hail king of the jews and the mock homage of kneeling all seem all, all serve sort of as a parody mm -hmm. of an actual mm -hmm. coronation ceremony and so, again, we have, you know, Jesus is being mocked, he's being derided, but there's an irony there in that they, they assume that he can't possibly be, right. you know, who they're, they're calling him to be. And at the same time, it seems like the reader of the Mark's gospel knows, well, yeah, he truly is. And you guys don't, just don't realize how, true, how yeah. truly he was this exalted figure. You know, that's an interesting point, because if we're going back to the beginning of Mark, and Mark does this, you know, remember he tells us at the beginning um, who, Jesus, who Jesus is. Jesus is the Son is, of God. But then the whole rest of the time, it's kind of for us to make up our minds. So by now, where's your reader? Is mm -hmm. your reader really on board or not? Oh, I think and, definitely. Yeah. Well, and this, this kind of practice of mocking um, the accused is not atypical. Mm. The humiliation factor is is part of the sort of the assumption of guilty before proven innocent, and they're and they're just re re enacting that basically. A absolutely, absolutely. There's you know, there's this sense of uh, you deserve what yeah. you're getting. Yeah. Shame on you for going yeah. here. Yeah. And yet, for us reading this, it's so incredibly horrible. Now, interestingly. Uh, the, again, there's a there's a Hebrew Bible backdrop to this. Isaiah 50 verse six um, in the Septuagint is very has some very strike, striking um, correspondences in 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 um, wording. Uh, uh, it says, "I gave my back to those who struck me." So we have the flogging. My cheeks to those who pulled out the mm -hmm. beard. I did not hide my face from insult and spitting. Mm -hmm. So. You know, again, there there seems to be some. This is working as a subtext for for Mark in in the in the passion narrative. Yeah, yeah. Moving on, next scene, the crucifixion of Jesus. Um, so here it is laid out. This is our first gospel. Give us a sense. Give us a sense of sure. uh, what we're what we're reading here. Yeah, the whole process of crucifixion was meant to just slowly strip down a person of their very humanity. Yeah. And so a big part of this was humiliation. And so part of the humiliation of crucifixion was to have the condemned person carry the cross or very likely the cross beam. Mm -hmm. um, and yet Mark tells us that apparently Jesus was too weakened to do that. Mm -hmm. well, one of the things I find interesting is that when Mark 
speaks about the actual crucifixion of Jesus, all he says was, they crucified right, him. Right, right. Period. No further comment or detail. I guess, uh, you know, his, his readers were left to understand in that day and time the details of crucifixion right. that they were probably all too familiar with. Oh, yes. We are left to imagine because we, we actually know very little about crucifixion in the Roman world. Those who've studied it have found that there's a lack of literary reference to it because it seems like the educated Romans of the day were well, found it abhorrent, and they didn't want to comment on you know, it. You know, and of course, to to remind everybody, this is a this is something not done to Roman citizens. Right. Um, this is a this is a punishment given to the worst um, uh, agitators against Rome who are not citizens. So this is this is designed to uh, bring fear to all the people that are resisting Rome and the inevitable. You know. Roman world, and, and you have to remember, Rome is all about military. It's all power. about power. It's mm-hmm. all about taking over. I mean, that is their entire value system is based on that. So you have to play, place it in that context. And so You also get the idea that, that cultured Romans were kind of embarrassed or ashamed of, of, of crucifixion. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And so we don't really know a lot about the details. We do know that, um, as you said, I mean, crucifixion was a, you know, a means of fending off insurgency. And it was a means of, of sort of making it so uh, such a horrific punishment that no one would dare to rise exactly. up against and the And they did believe Empire. it was a deterrent. Yes, um, yes. And it was probably a pretty effective it one because was. it was it was such a gruesome death. It was terrifying. We also, what we do know is that there was no single method for crucifixion right. in the Roman Empire. I think people sort of approach the, the cross and they think, well, you see a crucifix and that's exactly the way it happened and that's the way it always happened. That's not the case. Right. There, right. People were crucified in all different kinds of ways. Uh, in the Roman Empire, sometimes you know. people were crucified after they'd already died. Yeah, you know, it, it was there was just a wide variety of practices. Yeah. So, for example, um, uh, nailing on the cross beam was done, but so was tying the condemned person to the cross mm-hmm. beam, tying the arms to the cross beam. Um, there, there, there was some debate. There has been some debate about whether nailing the feet was something right. that was actually done. I read done. that as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, some, some crucifixions involved a peg or a kind of brace on which the condemned person sat. You know, we, we have the image of, of a crucifix, and so we assume a lot about Jesus' crucifixion based on mm-hmm. that tradition. I don't know that we can know exactly how right. Jesus was crucified. For example, in the Synoptic Gospels, there's no mention of be- Jesus being nailed to the cross, nor of his body being pierced in any way, for the most part. Um and this is in contrast, for example, to John's gospel, right. which emphasizes both the nailing and the piercing. And only Luke and John really imply even that that Luke that Jesus was nailed to the right. cross when they report that Jesus showed his disciples his hands right. and feet. Right. And Thomas said, you know, put your hand in my right. side. Right. Right. Now some have some have pointed out, you know, this could also correlate with Psalm twenty two as a subtext as a subtext mm-hmm. for the recounting of the of the passion narrative. Psalm twenty two sixteen, a company of evildoers encircled me, they have pierced my hands and feet, which is the Revised Standard Version translation. The new Revised Standard Version translates it differently. Um, Justin Martyr, Tertullian referred to the nails, the Gospel of Peter referred right. to the nailing. Uh, but the rest of the New Testament, there's no reference to nailing 
in the rest of the New mm-hmm. Testament. I find this interesting because mm-hmm. the rest of the New Testament simply speaks of Jesus being crucified or hanged on a tree. Right. And that's, that's it. Different. They mm-hmm. don't specify the nails. So, I, I mean, there is archaeological evidence, as I mentioned, that nailing was practiced, but I don't know that we can know the details right. themselves. Right, right. And then, of course, Mark adds the detail about the soldiers casting lots, again, reflecting yes. reflecting. yes. Psalm 22 is a subtext. Right. Psalm 22, 18, they divide my clothes among themselves, and for my clothing they cast lots. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, let's see. Moving on, we hit the next scene um, by um, those who witnessed the crucifixion. Yeah, and again, you know, the, there's, there's a, the irony is building in this whole passage, and, and the mockery continues, you know, uh, this whole passage, this whole chapter, you know, the, the antagonizers, yes. the opponents, uh, the enemies of Jesus are mocking Jesus at every turn, and this is what happens here. And again, we have a, we have a, a subtext from Psalm 22, 7 and 8, all who see me mock at me, they make mouths at me, they shake their heads. Now, Mark recounts then that the inscription of the charge against Jesus read the King of the Jews, which again carried implications of insurgency mm-hmm. and probably was intended to be a taunt to Jesus. Oh, because, I, yes, I think you know, so. here's the King of the Jews. The Romans are taunting the Jews as well. Here's right. the King of the, here's your King, the King of the right, Jews. Right. He, you know, he's the, he's the one who's hanging on a cross and helpless to save himself. Well, an interesting piece I found. Because this is not a king, um, and, and it certainly isn't a god either. And, and so we, we have in some of the, the ancient Roman frescoes um, an actual picture of, of um, uh, someone kneeling down mm-hmm. with, you, you know what I'm talking the about. The Alexamenos Yes, yes, thank you. He's even got the right name for it. It's a, it's a man hat. with yeah. the head of, a, of an ass hanging yes. on a cross, and it says, Alexamenos worships his God. Yes. And, and so, so there's the idea this... of, of the, I mean, it was just something ridiculous in, in the Greek world. They, they just thought, saw it as it's, total, it, total that's, foolishness. That's the whole point. It's total foolishness. Yeah. And so this, this is kind of that beginning. This is, this is absolutely foolish. Mm-hmm. The Romans would absolutely put that up as a mocking right. kind of thing. Right. Yeah. Right. And again, you know, the fact that he's crucified with two lestas or, or insurgents was likely intended to prove Jesus guilty of insurrection by association. Um, and, you know, if he weren't an insurgent, he wouldn't be crucified, would have been the, the assumption. So in a very real sense, this is the first act of mockery in this scene, just the fact that, that um, the charge against him was the, that he was the king of the Jews. But it's followed by several others. Um, we get the impression from Mark's gospel that the audience had the chance to pass by the condemned, right. apparently getting a closer look. And Mark says they derided him, as the new RSV translates it, but... The word is a blasphemoon. Literally, they blasphemed him. And the way in which they did that was by repeating the false charge. Again, here, the emphasis on the temple, that Jesus would destroy the temple and raise it in three mm-hmm, days. Mm-hmm. And uh, so they called on him to save himself and come down from the cross. You know, if he's going to do something as outlandish as destroying the temple and raising it back in three days, he ought to be able to, to come down from the cross and save himself. 
But even more to the point, the chief priests and scribes are said to pass by, and they comment to themselves. They don't even say this to Jesus. They just comment to themselves. themselves. He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Messiah, the King of Israel, come down from the cross now so that we may see and believe. But here the irony reaches a high pitch. For Jesus to save others, he cannot save himself. Uh, He must remain on the cross to fulfill the redemptive purpose of God's kingdom for Israel and for the world. And so by remaining on the cross in a way that is seemingly, you know, contradicting his, his Mm -hmm. claims about himself or the claims made about him, he truly demonstrates that he is the Messiah, the King of Israel. And so the irony here reaches a really high point, you know, that they assume, you you know, a crucified, crucified man was not a king, a crucified man was not a Messiah. But uh, in fact, Jesus was both, he fulfilled the role of both in the true sense of the term by, by uh, staying on the cross and dying for others. Now, the comment that those who were crucified with him also taunted him also emphasizes Jesus' isolation. Right. And it recalls mm-hmm. the detail of, uh, of Psalm 69.9, which we ran across in John's gospel with the cleansing of the temple. Zeal for your house consume me. Well, the next, the, the next line is the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. And so perhaps this is also uh, a, a Hebrew Bible subtext for yes. Jesus' crucifixion. Yeah. And so at the end of the day, then in Mark's gospel, Jesus dies quite alone in the world, deserted by his disciples, right. opposed by the Jewish leaders, rejected by the people of Israel, mocked by the Romans, and basically misunderstood by everyone. Yeah. Then we have the whole place of what happens next, what happens when he dies. This is a big deal for our reformers, actually. So Mark begins the episode with the statement that darkness covered the whole land Mm -hmm. beginning at noon. And again, we have an Old Testament subtext for this in Amos chapter 8, Mm -hmm. verses 9 and 10. On the day of the Lord, um, says the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasts, this was the Passover, right, into Mm -hmm. morning, and I will make it like the morning for an only son. And so this this also seems to be a subtext for the passion narrative uh, that Mark is using. Uh, You know, Mark doesn't give us any further description of of the things that Jesus underwent. He doesn't tell us much more about it. But then at 3 p.m., uh, he reports that Jesus cried out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is actually a combination of Aramaic and Hebrew for the first line of Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so again, here we have Psalm 22 explicitly mm-hmm. uh, yeah, serving yeah. as a subtext for understanding this event. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I don't believe that this cry of desolation on Jesus' part should be pressed beyond the simple expression of anguish at the point of a brutal death. Uh, Many have made a theological point of this. Maybe the reformers did to say that Jesus experienced the full forsakenness of humankind. But I'm not convinced that it's sound theology to say that the Father forsook the Son any more than it is to say that God forsakes us. That seems to be Mm -hmm. one of the fundamental truths about God is that God never forsakes us. And in fact, the New Testament in Acts quotes Psalm 1610 that affirms, you will not forsake using the mm-hmm. same Greek word that's translated for forsaken here, you will not forsake my soul to the grave. So the idea is that, that this, was a, this was a demonstration, this was a proof right. of the resurrection, but 
it seems to go against the idea that God forsook Jesus. Well, you know, it's that big question mark. That's where the Christology comes in. You know, the, the whole big theological discussion, which we've pledged probably not to go to too much today. But yeah, is God still with Jesus at this point? Or, you know, like like Alan said, the big debate is, or is at this point God separated from Jesus? Mm-hmm. And and um, I think our theology would suggest that, no, God doesn't. My, I have to bring in time. my favorite Reformed theologian, Jürgen Moltmann, who says that at this point, Jesus is never more in concert with the Father's will exactly. than when he dies on the cross. Exactly. How can we imagine God forsaking him at that point? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, you know, these are questions that we'll put on the shelf because we already have a long podcast today, but um, we'll, come we'll, back break, to we'll come back to them. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So this brings us then to really something of a, of, a, of a very important point in Mark's gospel, which is the remark of the centurion. Now, the centurion was a captain of a hundred men. Right. He was very likely supervising this crucifixion. And he remarks, truly this man was God's mm-hmm. son, which is the first time Absolutely. in the whole gospel of Mark that a person in his or her right mind acknowledges Jesus as the son of God. And right. that's really kind of the point to which the whole narrative has been building from the very right. first verse. Right. We were told yes, this exactly. is the gospel of Jesus the Christ, the son of God, and nobody gets it until now right this centurion and interestingly we have we have probably again a subtext from psalm 22 here psalm 22 27 28 at the end concludes with the idea that all the ends of the earth shall worship before him and in fact luke brings it out that when the centurion remarks on on jesus death he praised god uses the verb doxadzo, he praised God. So this is a significant point, not only in the passion narrative, but also in Mark's gospel narrative as a whole. Now, Mark specifies that what called forth this declaration on the part of the centurion was the way in which Jesus breathed his last. And, you know, I've always asked myself the question, what was it about the way in which Jesus died that led to this affirmation on the part of a Roman centurion mm-hmm. who had likely witnessed many crucifixions? Right, it's just right. unclear. Now, in Matthew, if you compare Matthew's account, however, there are several miraculous events that follow Jesus' death. Jesus mm-hmm. cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Right. Then there's an earthquake. Yep. People come out of the tombs. The curtain of the temple is ripped right. from top to bottom. Right. You know, and so there are a number of things that happen. And and Matthew actually says this when when the centurion saw this, right? He remarked, "This man was the son of God." That's what Matthew. That's Matthew's mm-hmm. narrative. Mm-hmm. But the fact that Mark's gospel simply connects the centurion's affirmation with the way in which Jesus breathed his last may suggest that there was something about the way Jesus himself acted and maybe specifically his final cry. Maybe mm-hmm. we're to take, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Many have argued that we're to take that not as a cry of desperation, but as a cry of triumph. Right. Uh, because right. the psalm does end on that note of triumph, that God mm-hmm. does not forsake the one who's afflicted right. and that all the ends of the earth shall worship before him. Mm-hmm. Now, I think it's probably both and. I, th- I, think I think in so that too. situation, so Jesus yeah. is crying out in anguish, but he's crying out a psalm that he knows very well concludes 
with an yes. a, a, a reassurance that God does not forsake the one who is afflicted. And in fact, in the end, all the ends of the earth, all the nations are going to worship God. And so um, I think it's both and. and, and, and so I, but, but in Mark's gospel, it doesn't make much sense that Jesus cries out in this, just, my God, my God, why have you forsaken right. me? And the centurion sees this and says this man was the son of God. Unless right. there's some emphasis, some aspect of that Jesus is dying in a way that he's, he's entrusting himself into God's care. You know, I mean, reflecting on, on some of our earlier podcasts, and I've been reflecting on Jesus, um, the nature of Jesus, right? Um, and so I was reflecting back on when, when Jesus called the disciples, and we, we did but kind of a high Christology and a low Christology. Here we are again with a high Christology and a low Christology yep. understanding what happened, yep. which I think is a part of Mark, certainly more particularly part of who Jesus is, mm-hmm. both man the man part probably has that sense of forsaken. The, the divine part is, is fulfilling that call in his life. And it somehow what's so brilliant about this is it, it both both and. both mm-hmm. They're both there. Um, well, and you know, I might even ascribe both to the human Jesus. That, that in his humanity, well, sure. Jesus did experience the despair and the anguish of dying right. on the cross. But he also was determined to sure, fulfill sure, God's will. Sure, I think that's fair. Yeah, yeah, I think yeah. that's fair. But, I mean, I think there's there, there might have been just something there that said, this person doesn't, doesn't die like other people right, die. Right. This, person, um, this person is somehow different there's something yes. about jesus yes. i think it's how you put it a long time I did. ago i did something about yes, jesus indeed. yeah yeah and and this centurion notices that right you know wh- whether it was his cry on the cross or what it was you know the centurion is like the others in mark's gospel he notices that there's right. something different about but jesus you wonder and he finally puts that into words this man was the son of god <laughs> you wonder about the centurion too. You know, he, he clearly was the one watching. Maybe it was his job to write down when he was finally expired. Maybe yeah. his job. So he was watching what other people did not watch. And so then what next? Well, at the end of this passage that, that sort of talks about Jesus' death, Mark mentions the women who were looking on from a distance. Yes. And again, you probably have an Old Testament subtext here, Psalm 38, 10. My friends and companions stand aloof from my affliction, and my neighbors stand afar off. Now, I don't think we're meant to see this as a criticism of the women. You know, the men who were following Jesus, they fled. They weren't even anywhere around, according to the Synoptic Gospels. And only the women were present for Jesus' crucifixion. But... They weren't able to be close to him. Even they were separated from him. Sure. And, and in, in fact, this is the only place in Mark's gospel where he even mentions that there were women who were associated with Jesus' right. disciples. And he says that the women provided for him or perhaps ministered to him. The verb is diakoneo. Mm-hmm. And, and Mark adds also significantly that there were many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. So it, I think we're meant to understand that there were a number of women among the disciples and that these women that Mark names specifically have the courage to show up right. for the crucifixion. Right, right, right. Now, this is going to come into play later on because, because they also see where Jesus is buried, and then they're the ones absolutely. who witness the empty tomb. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, yeah they're, they're, they're huge, and of course, for... In, in Mark's gospel, they're the only ones who witness the empty tomb. Exactly, <laughs> Ex- exactly. 
um, those women are are not just sidelined, and I think it's really important that Mark tells us about them. He yes. told this in a different way. He places them front and center in a very central part exactly. of his gospel. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Now, so just to sum up here, I would say in this section of Mark's gospel, there is only a narrative of Jesus' death. There's really not much in the way of interpretation right. of Jesus' death and right. the meaning of his death. But the process for interpreting the meaning of Jesus' death began with the New Testament, and it was very much present in the Gospels. And I think we see that in the Last Supper, particularly. Jesus uses images from the Hebrew Bible to interpret the meaning of his death at the Last Supper, mm -hmm. including the vicarious sacrifice that redeems from Isaiah 53, and including the inauguration of a new covenant from Jeremiah 31, as well as the fulfillment of the kingdom of God. Jesus in Mark's gospel says, you know, takes the vow at the end, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until I drink it anew in the Father's kingdom. And so these three ideas are already floating around that Jesus uh, death is is a sacrifice that redeems in the in the line of Isaiah 53. Jesus death inaugurates the new covenant of Jeremiah 31 and Jesus death constitutes a fulfillment of the kingdom of God. Mm -hmm. So I think let's have a look in a little bit at what our reformers say. Sounds good. Thanks right, Christy. Thanks. We're back, friends, and I'm going to take turns now letting Christy tell us about how the Reformers understood this passage, which is so central to our faith. Sure. You know, and I went and looked at some of the comments and, and commentaries from the Reformers on this passage, and the thing that struck me is kind of a general... Um, a general observation I could make really across the board was that the reformers were really emphasizing the humanity of Jesus, um, how Jesus as a human being experienced the trial and the death. And I think this is kind of um, a kind of a renewed emphasis on, on Jesus, the human Jesus, rather than um, kind of the divine Jesus that you were getting in the Roman Catholic tradition. Um, and just a reminder that, that, that Jesus was like us. Now, I wanted to take that a little bit into the context of the, of the 16th century and really even the 15th century that preceded it because you have to always remember that the Reformation came on the heels of the Italian Renaissance and then the Northern Renaissance. And, of course, one of the big emphases of this is this not only the humanities, but the human form and the human body. And, you know, of course, this is, we've talked before, where we get the beautiful artwork depicting the human form, but we, we become more in tune with human emotion. For example, if you go into the music tradition, you start to get these effects in the music that are mimicking emotion in them. And so everything is much more concentrated on on the human being itself and is and 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 the beauty of of being human so this is very different than your kind of medieval tradition where the body is bad and we are ignoring the things of the body and we even have trouble visualizing jesus as human sometimes um uh, or he's human, but he's so perfect that he doesn't really experience life like a human being. I mean, these are the things that kind of process. And so that's my first observation. Well, and, you know, it makes sense that they would focus on that because 
among Jesus' experiences, this is the one that involves his body most of all. Absolutely. And there's such a, yeah, such a reference there. Um, and then, um, and then moving on to, I think what's also interesting about this passage and how they get to where they are is we also see the birth of a lot of our, if you will, modern, um, modern fields, in particular archaeology. So they're as they're reading this, they're becoming very interesting in the hows and the whats, you know. They want to know mm. more about, they start to ask these questions that we ask, more about the crucifixion and more about how the trial worked and more about what the Romans were doing. So while they weren't as sophisticated as we are, they're beginning this process that, that leads into some of these questionings. So, for example, um, they when they're talking about Pilate, they're trying to figure out who Pilate is. Instead of just this evil guy who's accusing Jesus, they're really trying to look at him. Well, what's his role? What's his role as a as a as a Roman um, as a Roman officer? And and what's his what's his what's his job? What's he trying to do? And they're like, oh well, okay, he's trying to keep the peace. Um, and that then they're saying, well, then why did he why did he f- you know why was he so opposed to Jesus? What would have triggered it? And they suggest. Mm, because they're t- because Jesus, um, if he is considered a king, challenges Pilate's power. And so that impacts how Pilate then is responding to Jesus, um, that he needs to be in a process of, of putting Jesus down in order to c- maintain his own power. So th- these are some of the things that they really start to bring into play. And we kind of take these for granted in our in our modern context, we've kind of already done this process, but they're really starting to dig through this. So mm-hmm. I want to add all this great stuff the reformers said, but the reality is a lot of the stuff is, is stuff that we kind of already have figured out. Sure. It's part of kind of our narrative today, but may not have been when you slice it off of a Roman Catholic tradition. It, it looks at this much more stiffly. Yeah, I mean, I think from the historical setting, being the governor of Judea, was probably not the lowest position mm-hmm. in the Roman Empire, but it was certainly closer to the bottom than the top. Right, right. <laughs> it, it, well, exactly. And, you know, you're talking about a province that has just recently come come from being, if you will, a, a puppet state with s- some independence to now being taken over by Rome. He's he knows they're a pain in the rear. I mean, you know, when you look at it in terms of Rome... Rome it's not a plum position no. for him, no. Well, and... So, so he's, you know, if he's got an eye on his career at all, he's, you know, he's concerned with making sure that his, his masters in Rome are pleased. Right, exactly. <laughs> and, you know, even though it's this little province of seemingly no importance, it's exceedingly important when it comes to the wheat trade. So mm-hmm. it's like Rome needs them to feed this military population. And, you know, Pilate's main purpose is going to have to be just Whatever you do, make sure they don't riot up against us. You know, just sure. just keep them under control. So that's well, really... it's it's the crossroads between Africa, Asia, yes. and Europe, yes. and it, throughout history, it has been uh, uh, that has created problems exactly. and brought that area into close focus for pretty much every world power. Right, right. Of, of whatever era you're talking right. about. Well, and, and of particular importance, of course, was the Egyptian wheat that was coming up yes, through indeed. there and, and their role in that, that trade. Was, that was, mm-hmm. Egypt was known as Rome's breadbasket. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And so there they sit. But yeah, you're absolutely right. And of course, it's not going to be too long from here that, um, you know, we're still in the midst right now of massive Roman expansion, but 
it's not, we're not too far away from their big defeat by the Germans. And that, um, you know, that's also a, a fear. Well, if the Germans can resist us, can other people fall into revolt as well? So you've got, <laughs> so anyway, you have some of this processing going on here, which I think was- And the reformers kind of are taking a look at some of these details. Yeah, they yeah. are starting to, yeah. they're starting to ask these kinds of questions. And I think that's, I think that's an important shift. And as I said, it doesn't necessarily, I think it just helps us realize how we got to asking some of these sure. questions and how these ended up as assumptions. For example, and I don't know the answer to this, but, you know, for example, some of our assumptions about the cross, physical cross itself, mm-hmm. or even what Jesus looked like, you know, are all these pieces mm-hmm. that start to become um, questions that they ask and then become solidified in, in, in during the this tradition, period. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Mm. So some interesting pieces. Well, I must say one of the one of the pleasant surprises, you know, as we've been doing this podcast, is when you when you talk about say Calvin or some of the other reformers, you know, it is reassuring to to note that oh hey they were kind of doing the same kind of work that I'm doing and, mm-hmm. and that we're trying to do. You know, that's very reassuring. Yeah, we're we're actually are following in their tradition, even if we don't necessarily agree with all of their conclusions. Well, exactly, exactly, and and some of the questions they ask, of course, as we know, even as they're through this process of asking questions and making observations, sometimes what we pull out as their conclusions aren't necessarily all of what they said. I mean, so moving on, um, you know, they were also really interested in this crowd. Um, You know, seeing the same observations actually that we made is that here's this this crowd of people, um, and I think Alan pointed out the words usage is a little bit different from those at Palm Sunday to those who are actually at the trial. But yet, we're still talking about this group of group of people, and how do people seemingly be supportive of Jesus and then not be supportive of Jesus? Um, and so they they started to ask some of those questions about um, the crowd, and, and Calvin himself says, "Well, look, it's." They, he says, I don't think it was so much that they were after the death of Christ, but they were just the fear, the fear of what would happen to them. All of a sudden, mm. they began to realize that greater powers could impact their lives. So they weren't willing to make the same kinds of sacrifices for themselves that Jesus was for them. Sure. It was like, oh, but if I would get and in trouble, I would have to move away. And of course, what we have, you know, Peter denies him three times. His own follower won't even follow him well i mean in that day if you got in trouble you were thrown in jail and there was no you know habeas corpus there was no (laughs) there was no uh right to trial i mean if you were in jail you might just stay there for the rest of your life without being charged with anything exactly exactly (laughs) so So, yeah it it kind of makes sense it kind of makes sense in that in in that sense how people got there you know and and again i think you know in 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 terms of maybe our own theological context it certainly is a manifestation of human sin right i mean uh, yeah i want to be on the good side but how will i continue or will i pull away how do we know which one which side is good and which side is wrong well that's true as well (laughs) that can be a challenge sometimes that's true as well so and they comment on as we continue through the the episode the the different scenes that we have talked about um other little pieces that i i picked up on um they noted the same sense of mockery in the mockery scene um calvin in particular again was um um, noting that, look, this is a mockery of an, an actual coronation. 
again, um, another piece was, you know, this whole Simon of Cyrene uh, fellow. Um, and they're, again, processing why this guy, why he's pulled out. Um, um, and Calvin, Calvin is just emphasizing that this is a person of really, really low rank. Um, and we might have looked on this, again, this might have been a bit of irony, on this is like the most horrible thing to do, and yet it becomes kind of the most honorable thing to mm. do is to carry this cross. Um, and then um, Heinrich Bullinger, remember um, Bullinger in Zurich, actually um, goes and talks about that as true followers of Christ, we're a lot like Simon because we're carrying the cross um, um, but we don't want to. Kind of yeah, I guess point. I would probably say it. We want to, but we don't want to. <laughs> yeah, 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 right, right. He Bullinger puts it in terms of we are forced to do so, mm, which really? I thought was wow. interesting, like maybe compelled um, mm-hmm. to do so. And that has a sense of I'm doing this anyway, even though my, my sinful nature doesn't, doesn't yeah. want me to, I think, is where he's coming from. So, and then... Um, uh, we didn't talk in our earlier discussion about the the drinking of the the wine mixed mm-hmm. with um, myrrh, myrrh. Yep. Um, and so that was an interesting piece as well. Um, and because there's a, some debate, and maybe Alan can can give us some more sense of this, of whether this was an offer of of kindness towards Christ, or whether this was actually um, a cruel thing to do because the myrrh would be. Um, offensive to him the the consensus is that in mark's gospel it's meant to be an act of kindness because it was meant as an anesthetic Mm -hmm. that would help to ease the Mm -hmm. pain of the death there you go and that was that was some what some of the reformers had had thought but what's interesting is their their analysis of why jesus didn't take it was because that that he recognized that his death was was eminent and that he was calmly moving towards it, that he wasn't going to do anything to try to take away the, the, uh, the pain, the complete right. pain that he was expected to experience. He, he was intent on fulfilling yes. his role full, completely. Yes. Yeah. Interesting with this is, is Luther. And I want to head over to Luther because Luther's response is, you know, this is so heavy. And we talk about the women weeping and we talk and they blame the women on being weaker so it's easier for them to weep yeah. uh, which i think is interesting observations anyway at this time but but luther actually says to us no but you should not weep none of us should be weeping over this and i think that's interesting because when you're looking in a roman catholic tradition and and the tradition of going and looking at jesus on the crucifix and 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 crying yourself he is like no don't do this you should be happy because Christ suffers on our behalf that he offers up his body to the cross. And, and, and he says, Luther quote, God will be appeased through such a sacrifice and poor miserable sinners will be freed from God's wrath and become heirs of eternal life. And it grieves the Lord when we weep because his suffering is for our happiness. Wow, that's kind of uh, in your face. <laughs> it is in your face. And I mean, I think about Luther, you know, Luther didn't like most of the Catholic observances. Right. You know, our, for example, our Monday, Thursday, and, and Good Friday services tend to be somber. They do. They tend, and, and 
intentionally so. Mm-hmm. You know, many of them, many of them involve the stripping of the church mm-hmm. and the dimming of the lights. And the idea is that we're to be solemn about this and not to be rejoicing at this yeah. point. We rejoice on yeah, Easter Sunday. Exactly. And so this <laughs> so is maybe a, maybe Luther wouldn't like that. I don't well, know. Well, you know, I think it really reflects maybe Luther's journey more than anything mm. else, where where he just simply. Um, he never was, he simply was never worthy. You know, he felt himself never mm. worthy of, of, of Christ and a sacrifice and in realizing that he couldn't do enough to be saved and realizing, wait, I'm saved. So this is part of his, mm. his theology of so salvation. The, so the guilt that kind of oozes through this quotation probably was Luther's own guilt. I think it is. <laughs> yeah. I think it is, but it becomes a big part of kind of his identity. But I think it also is, Maybe problematic for for jumping over the sacrifice. I mean, I, I think mm. there's a space here, and I think we practice this in our faith today. I, I think there's a space here for weeping, and and I think we understand today that you know this weeping is an important part of our rejoicing. Yep. Um, but I think Luther might have had a big part to play in why we tend to jump straight to mm-hmm. Easter Sunday and rejoicing. Um, and even, well, and there are even, many traditions in the Protestant world, you know, that don't even observe Lent. I, I, so there I are wonder, folks who are on different pages on that even today. Yeah, absolutely. And there current uh, there were obviously during the um, during yeah. the Reformation era as well. Um, but an interesting, it's just an interesting comment. And so I thought that was kind of worth uh, picking out. And then finally, um, on death, on on Christ's death, um, is the. Um, that these earthquakes and the ripping of the of the curtain of the temple, all these are signs from gods. Um, mm. That that there's this kind of cosmic thing that happens. Um, so so Jesus' death, as you, I think you were going to say, ripples throughout nature or something yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. Wow. Um, I, I like that. I like that image. Actually, it is really. I thought that was really moving and interesting. That this is a. It, this is, of course, would be the cause for the centurion in part. Maybe it was something about Jesus, but even more, maybe it was what happened. Maybe it was this whole experience, uh, out of out of world experience, if you will, that it happened when when Jesus died. It, interesting, um, interesting to ponder. Um, and I think the other thing I I wanted to point out is as I reflect on them is um, the, the language they do use is that um, the that Jesus is a sacrifice, um, the sacrificial nature. We, we, mm-hmm. A lot of that, that kind of thing. And again, we weren't going to go into that theology too much, but I, I thought that was um, pretty much across the board is that they use that sacrifice. Well, they kind language. of inherited that, didn't they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. They're, they haven't moved into some of the more kind of... So the meaning of Jesus' death is that of a vicarious yeah, sacrifice. absolutely, yeah, yeah. yeah. So that gives you a little taste of the Reformation, but I hopefully gives you an idea of how this will play then into how we understand what happens today. You know, uh, we make some assumptions, and if nothing else, you're figuring out all oh, these assumptions are kind of laced into the the historical movement, or the the early modern modern periods, which which really help us focus not only on these these different areas of study that that impact our, our ability to, to do um, various types of language studies or, or different types of um, archaeological studies, but also um, give us this kind of intellectual sense about the rise of, of 
of the, the human space. And, and just, anyway, we'll come back and put some things together. All right. Thanks. thanks. Well, hi, everybody. We are back. Um, and I, um, you know, I'm going to take this next part from kind of the new pastor perspective because um, new pastors and my friends that are new pastors, you know, they have hit this point in their pastorate that they're pretty much running week by week. And so I think there's a big surprise when you open up the Revised Common Lectionary and you haven't prepped in advance, and all of a sudden, Palm Sunday, when you're expecting to read about coming into Jerusalem and waving palms, you get this passion text. And so what do you do? Why are you preaching? My first thought is, why am I preaching the passion on Palm Sunday and... where, you know, how do I even go and in, get into this? And so I was going to ask Alan, who has been a pastor for quite a long time, um, how, what, what he makes of all of, all of this. Well, you know, I, I will, I will be clear. There is, there are two scripture readings that are related to the Palm Sunday, um, aspect of it, but only two. There's not a full four scripture readings for Passion as as it is for Passion Sunday. Now, you know, when I first started being a pastor, I made a conscious decision at that point. I'm going to preach on the Passion on the Sunday before Easter because I probably won't have an opportunity to do so otherwise. Now, I was pastoring in a small church. We did have a Monday-Thursday service. At that point, we didn't have a Good Friday service. Um, our Monday Thursday service was a pretty traditional service. You know, we we read some scriptures, we sang some hymns, we had communion, and that was about it. No, not really a sermon on that mm-hmm. on that on that occasion. So, you know, for me, it was the only opportunity leading up to Easter for me to preach a sermon on Jesus' crucifixion. And I didn't really see, I mean, yeah, I know that the triumphal entry is a favorite story and all of that, but I just really didn't see moving on to Easter without addressing mm-hmm. the cross in Lent. Mm-hmm. And so that it was, a, it was kind of just a, I guess, maybe a theological move, but it also had to do with my context where I just didn't feel like I was going to have another opportunity to address the death of Jesus. Well, and the other thing is, you know, traditionally, and I don't know about other churches, but my experience with Monday, Thursday, and Good Friday services is that they're they're they are poorly attended. They're poorly attended. So again, if you don't preach on the Passion the Sunday before Easter, you don't really have another chance to even address it with the majority of the congregation. One interesting thought that's coming to mind here, you know, you, if, if, if you're doing a worship structure, you could still have your Palm Sunday at the beginning, like, and, and you can you can recognize that, and then you can say, and look how quickly we can move. Look how quickly we move to the, con- to the yeah, crucifixion and, 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 and the crowd shouting and crucify And in fact, the him. crowd, yeah. that crowd is an interesting, you know, I've been on this crowd this whole day, that's a, kind of an interesting uh, group to maybe talk about, because mm-hmm. you could talk about them at Palm Sunday, and you could talk about them again at the trial and the crucifixion. And um, I think that's kind of an interesting tie. It is an so, interesting contrast. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Anyway, uh, so something that was something on my heart. I think, I think another thing um, that I've been thinking about with this is I've always viewed this as such a... It, it, is, it is the New Testament message, right? It's the gospel mm-hmm. piece. And yet we learned today that this has great ties and overlaps 
with um, the, the the Hebrew scriptures. So yep. I thought maybe we could talk about that a little more, Alan. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, as I said earlier, you know, there are some scholars who will say basically that the gospel writers just sort of fabricated the narrative of Jesus' death based on these Old Testament scriptures. And, you know, we see a little bit of that in Matthew's gospel. Matthew tends to throw in, you know, a lot of statements about so that what was written by the prophet or so-and-so could be fulfilled. Mm-hmm. And and there are a couple of those that really don't fit, and one of them we don't even know where he's quoting from. Right. <laughs> so, so we know that that kind of thing happened, but whether or not they just created the story out of out of a string of proof text is another thing altogether. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, I do think it makes sense that Jesus, you know, the things he experienced did have a correlation with some of the things that were referenced in the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. Psalm 22, you know, is basically... Unfortunately, we have a tendency to say, well, there's all these, there are all these references in, in the crucifixion narrative, so it must be a prediction of Jesus' right, death. Right. It is not. It is the anguished cry of someone who feels abandoned by God and the experience of affliction uh, that re- resolves itself. It's a, it's a prayer of lament that resolves itself in, as, as laments do, in the trust that God will not abandon the afflicted mm-hmm. one and that ultimately all people will, will worship God. So, so we ought not be surprised that there are some resonances between uh, this, um, ancient description of what it means to suffer and Jesus suffering. Right, uh, but I right. think the main outlines of the event of the cross would have been fairly clear. Mm-hmm. As you mentioned before, there were plenty of eyewitnesses around when the gospels were written to be able to say, no, I was there. It didn't happen that way. Mm-hmm. So I don't think we have this wholesale fabrication. I think what we've got here is, is sort of a hermeneutic. It's sort of a, a framework of interpretation. Mm-hmm. They, these people, you know, many of them, um, their whole lives have been informed by Hebrew scripture. Right. It would make, it would only make sense that when confronted with this story uh, that, you know, in the initial experiencing of it was shocking and was totally contradictory to all their expectations about Jesus and their understanding about Jesus. It totally reverses things, turns things upside down for them. Um, It it makes sense Mm -hmm. in that setting that they would turn to scriptures for an interpretive framework Mm -hmm. to understand what happened here. How how do we understand this? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the fact that they use the psalm of an anguished sufferer, Mm -hmm. the fact that they use the language of the suffering servant in Isaiah 53, Mm -hmm. I think makes sense. And, And so... I think it, you know, we have to understand we don't have access to the actual historical event of Jesus' death. Right. What we have are gospel retellings right. that combine memory, and I think exactly. the memory would have been fairly uh, reliable, with theological reflection that's in that's sort of based on Hebrew scripture. And that's what the whole New Testament is about anyway. Yep. yep. No, <laughs> so. I, I think it's good. I think it's good. And, and uh, you know, as someone, you know, as a historian, I am attracted to the real story. I've always yeah. been attracted to historical Jesus, even though it's got huge problems because they try to 
they, they try to actually take out any lens. I'm curious about the eyewitnesses and the story yes. they told. And I have no doubt this is a, a, a pretty reliable story. But yeah, I, I think that we view, it tells us a lot about our humanity that, and, 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 and if we want to look at how God helps us shape how we see our world, mm. you know, um, and so I, I used to teach uh, prior to becoming a pastor. I used to teach it. We, we used to joke the heathen university because it was, it was a secular school. And so I had to teach these things in a historical context without offering my own religious views, you know? So I used to talk about, you know, Jesus was in the Christian movement and, um, but you couldn't talk about it through this, this lens of faith. Mm-hmm. And, um, so it's, it was an interesting exercise and, um, you know, my students had no idea if I was Christian or not, because I just told this story of how this fit into our broader historical context. So, um, um, and, but it's interesting to think of how any history, how any history is understood, how any reality is understood. And, you know, and we talk about the whole history of humanity and, you know, then as as people of faith, how we understand that we're we're creatures that are brought here by God, then all of a sudden our entire concept of ourselves it fits within within that interpretive lens. Yeah. And then as we understand ourselves as 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 Christians, then again we have this next lens on top of it. And so I I find it awesome actually. Um, but I so it's for me this this. This is an amazing, an amazing reflection on who we are as sure. God's children, I guess. Sure. And so I love how you put that in a context to say, look, we have these strings that go back, but it doesn't mean this predicted this, mm-hmm. uh, which is what we want to do. And right. that kind of falsifies it. Right, it does. I think. I think it does too. Um, but to say, look, look at how this broad lens of, of, of who we are is and how we how we can understand ourselves as children of God. Now, I will say, you know, the early church fathers who were apologists, they relied heavily on the the um, argument that these Old Testament references proved that God was fulfilling what was predicted mm-hmm. in Jesus. I think that's a mistake. I really do. I agree. Uh-huh. That sort of falsifies the story more so than than verifies it. And I agree. I mean, in a very real sense, you know, Jesus' death was a bit of an earthquake mm-hmm. in terms of our understanding of ourselves, our understanding of God, you know, our understanding, really, our whole worldview. It mm-hmm. was an earthquake. It was a tectonic shift, right, right. you know, and... Um, and so now we use, we, we do the same thing, I think, that, that I'm describing in terms of Mark. You know, we use our convictions that are based on right. things like the cross uh, to understand our experiences. Absolutely. Uh, in that day, they would have used their faith traditions right. to right. interpret what they were experiencing. Well, and it gives us space, too, today to understand the world around us with the, indeed, the intellect that God has given us, um, the ability to uncover scientific reality. Um, my favorite theologian, T.F. Torrance, <laughs> who, you know, talks about his scientific theology, um, where he really, really says, look, God's purpose and the purposes of science are not counter to one another, mm-hmm. but that we can actually understand science and we can understand how God works through um 
how, how and continues to work in the world through things that we can now under now define as science, which they couldn't then, you know. Right. And to say, look, it's okay to understand this as Hebrew scripture, which my faith is strong enough. I don't have to claim what was Hebrew scripture as being Christian specifically, but rather though that it's, but I can see it as this broader way for God to introduce and have us understand the world through it. So I guess that's where I'm at. So let's move a little bit more than <laughs> coming back circle, you know, as, as we're telling people about, um, about this event. What, I, what is our most important takeaway? What uh, uh, should we be heading to cross or the theology of the cross, or should we be headed towards who Christ is, or should we be headed towards the sacrificial nature? I mean, there's so much going on. There is, um, and you know, I do think there's room for a broader treatment of the theology of the cross because the New Testament has a lot to say about it, I and agree. it's not all substitutionary I atonement. I agree, and there's some rich reform theological reflection out there about right. that. Um, we don't really have the time to do that today. I mean, I, th- I think to me, as I keep coming back to the human Jesus, and, and mm-hmm. you know, as we think about the humanity of Jesus, um, you know, we're jumping in kind of in the middle of the story because mm-hmm. the story begins with Jesus celebrating the Last Supper the night right. before. Right. He goes to the garden to pray. He's arrested in the garden. He's probably up all night. He's before, you know, some of the chief priests, perhaps, and, and perhaps before the Sanhedrin, before mm-hmm. daybreak. Finally, you know, early in the early in the morning he comes to Pilate. Pilate has him flogged. It's no wonder he collapses right. under the weight of the cross right. beam. Right. You know, he hasn't he hasn't eaten since <sighs> since the meal exactly. the night before. He exactly. hasn't slept. You know, he's been beaten. Oh, yeah. And so I think about the experience of the human Jesus, you know, that he went through an incredible amount of suffering uh, for our sakes. Right. But I also, as again, you know, I think about the human Jesus that he was, what defined him was this determination to fulfill God's purpose in his life. And he, you know, he seems to be that incredible person who has a single-minded devotion to that and doesn't let anything divert him from fulfilling God's purpose. I can't claim that I have had that kind of single-minded devotion. I've had experiences in my life that have derailed me. Mm Mm-hmm. And Mm -hmm. and they didn't derail me permanently, but but definitely Mm -hmm. have gotten off track. And... Uh, you know, but here's Jesus, you know, he's <laughs> undergoing this incredible ordeal and he's still even, you know, at the end when he's, when he's probably barely hanging on to consciousness and they offer him the wine mixed with myrrh, he said, mm-hmm. he knows, no, this isn't the path for mm-hmm, me. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to take something that's going to dull the pain. I'm going to follow this through to the very end. Mm-hmm. Uh, that just blows me. That kind yeah, of that it, kind of it, blows it, me it away. It does blow you away, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. And it just to me magnifies, I guess, the awe-inspiring quality of the yeah. cross. Yeah, I agree. And as I as as you tell me this, and I think about Luther's context, and it, I don't quite jump in with Luther. I no. think there's something very important about looking at the crucifix on the wall at the Catholic hospital mm-hmm. and just spending a minute 
to sit with Jesus in the suffering is mm-hmm. is is okay and, and good. I, I think I think it's healthy to spend more than a minute. <laughs> well, yeah, a long time. Spend spend the service, spend all of Lent or whatever. But but spending time in that space, mm-hmm. whereas well, I, the, the contemplation of the cross was a major part of Christian yeah. mysticism. You know, yeah, in the Middle Ages, and I, I, I realize yeah, absolutely, that, absolutely, I realize that Luther might not have liked that, but um, it still, I think, remains right a, a viable option for us today. I do too. Well, you know, I I wear a cross, and I'm kind of funny about crosses. I've inherited some that are quite bedazzled, and to me, it it kind of mimics and mm-hmm. and and makes fun of. It sort of parodies it. It par- parodies it, and and I do wear one because. When I see it, I, I, I like it to remind me of my call. And well, the, there's a simplicity to it. Uh huh. And so yeah. I look for these simpler ones. Um, I, I have a couple others, usually gifts. Um, and, and 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 the one that's the gift of my father, it's I still do wear because it's special. But yeah, I don't I don't like that. I like that simplicity and that that reminder of the sacrifice that was mm-hmm. there. We're going to that particular imagery, but that that sacrificial. Um, lamb imagery on that cross that 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 is helpful and 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 to be reminded that jesus suffered to the end for us Mm -hmm. um and that's pretty that's pretty awesome to wrap your brain around sure it is well and for me i think of the language of the of the suffering servant in isaiah 53 yes Uh, you know it is a vicarious kind of suffering that leads to our redemption it's sort of the language of the righteous sufferer that you find not only in in the hebrew bible but also in jewish tradition Mm -hmm. the maccabees you know different places like that you have this um, image of the righteous sufferer who by his his or her by his or her suffering there's some female martyrs in the Maccabean mm-hmm. uh, uh, books, you know, in, in somehow they benefit others by their suffering. Yeah. Wow. Well, I think that's a good place to stop. I hope this helps you with your preparation. Thanks, Christy. Thank you. That's our podcast for today. If you heard something that was helpful to you, please subscribe to our podcast and tell your friends about us. It's our hope and prayer that our time together might bear fruit in your ministry as you build up the body of Christ. We hope you'll tune in next week. And in the meantime, let's keep serving each other as we together listen listen for for the the word. word.